Uh, welcome to the farmhouse, everyone. Um, today, I, I am actually excited for today. Um, we're going to do a meditation through a video um, that's also kind of a teaching, but I'm hopeful that it'll be a way for you to uh, consider some questions that you might not always ask about the existence of God and transcendence and your life in the midst of that. So we're going to do that. Um, Noah's got a pretty diverse array of songs planned this morning, um, and I think, I think we'll enjoy that. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion together, except nobody will be receiving it from me today. <laughs> okay? Unless you want that, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, so uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, at the same time, like this isn't, this isn't all we do. And one of the things that I'm the most proud of, of the farmhouse as a church is that we have so many different components to our life. Farmhouse Sabbath, like throwing barn parties to display what community might look like, allowing people to experience the God, uh, the kingdom of God in very practical ways for a few hours. That's awesome. But then on the other hand, we have farmhouse conversations. It's like there are topics in culture that we often avoid or we just rant about on Facebook. And to be able to come and have conversation about those things, like we're, we're glad we have a space for that. We have the co-op. Um, which honestly it supports the farmhouse it supports local farmers and producers um, and I believe it supports you um, yes you might have to cook things and you might have to cook things that you wouldn't normally cook but it's a great thing and uh, it's it's one of our little attempts to try to move this community forward um, and then we've got uh, discipleship and we have micro communities and we have people who use this barn and throw events a lot of whom aren't from here. Um, we had talked about the barn being a third space for our community. And I don't know if you all realize, but like four or five days a week, this is getting used by somebody. It's pretty cool. Um, at the same time, we do feel like it's important for us to learn what it means to foster health here. And whatever the farmhouse is going to do, it's not going to fix everything. What the farmhouse can do, what, what every church can do, is help shape people to see the world in a particular way so they can live accordingly. And I'm hoping that's what happens for you. I hope that's what happens here today because we gather together to connect with each other. Hopefully you all connect with people today to explore ideas and to be formed. And I hope you all leave differently than you walked in today. That, that's what's going on. Uh, we're in our series called The Work in Progress. We're studying through the book of Acts. Acts is like our origin story. That's, that's where we hope that uh, we have our roots as the church. Um, and so we're trying to look at Acts and, and learn from what they did wrong, but also learn from what they did right and, and see what that means for us. Um, and so we've been, we're up to Acts 2, and we're going to look at that today. But to be a person of faith is to be a work in progress. You are becoming something. You're building a particular kind of world. And our faith tells us that we're supposed to become a particular kind of person in a particular kind of world. And my hope is that uh, today especially, we'll explore that. And you'll move a little bit closer into the work in progress that you're intended to become. So that's what's going on today. Um, I want to invite you right now. I know it's a little bit chaotic. If everyone could just stop. 
what they're doing. Just take a breath. Okay? And um, I want us to engage with this video. And what I'll say is if you have had a week that you are like still swimming, feel free to not pay attention. If you need 10 minutes of silence, you can use an hour today. All right? If you need to get up and do something, that's fine. Uh, I'm not holding your hands to this. What I do ask is that this is going to explore transcendence. Who is God? How can we understand God? Um, and what does that mean for our small lives? And so I invite you to participate in this um, however you would like. It'll start with some ideas, then it's going to tell the story of a rabbi, um, and then it'll offer us some things to consider um, here in this place. So if we're ready, let's go ahead and watch that. The search for what is transcendent may be a beautiful journey, but it must be understood as an incomprehensible task, even more indefinable than fully seeing the sun. The most wise traditions have always approached the concept of a divine with limitedness, that if we could see God, we would no longer be looking at God, for our mind should not be able to confine such conclusions. If a deity is truly a deity, then it will not be contained to a form recognizable by mere humans. Whatever is divine is inextricably uncapturable, and we ought to prefer it that way. This is why the Jewish tradition says that the name of the divine is unspeakable, because, quite literally, it is. To grasp the divine is not a task for which we are capable, and is not a task that we ought to want to grasp with our limited minds, for then we would not be left with transcendence but rather finitude. While this may be frustrating or even sound agnostic, there is a beauty in such mystery, and we ought to hope that transcendence lies beyond our comprehension, for then it is truly transcendent. Maybe it is quite possible that our job is not to understand the divine, to name and grasp whatever is behind the universe, but simply to be alive to its presence to approach, whether through science or philosophy, but to be okay with not comprehending, to receive the breath and gift of life, but not to master such a generous source of being, to encounter, but not to contain. For whatever is behind this, whatever is the source, whatever composes the song called the universe is only of value if it transcends the scope of our limitations. Disconcerting as this may be, I think it is better to know that something like myself is not the origin of all things. We may certainly search, but what is beyond us shall always be beyond us. Gratefulness for the light that can't be seen. To be grateful is to be powerless. It is acknowledging that life and breath and all that is somehow exists way beyond just you. It is opening yourself up to the reality that the world beautifully transcends the simple essence of your being, which is, in itself, a reason to be grateful.
There is an ancient Jewish story of a powerful Gentile ruler who, in search of divine wisdom, sought out the most esteemed rabbi of Israel to learn more about their deity. After traveling many, many miles, the ruler's trip concluded when he finally arrived at the simple abode of the rabbi. Upon entering the home, the ruler exclaimed in his dignitary tone, I have traveled to every corner of the world, visited the temples of this vast land, and have seen the gods and goddesses of humankind. But I have yet to encounter your God. I have heard of this God of Israel, and have sought you out, that you might show me your God, and my wisdom will be complete. Upon hearing the request, the rabbi sat silently, taking in the presence of this powerful dignitary. He then stood, walked to the window, and replied, If you would like to see our God, I will tell you how. In order to find this God and encounter this God's presence, you must wait for midday and travel to the depths of the desert. If there are no clouds in the sky, turn your gaze directly towards the sun and stare into its rays then you will be able to see and understand our God, the God of Israel. The ruler immediately left the abode and made his way to the desert, for it was almost noon. When he arrived to the most remote desert land he could imagine, the ruler prepared himself. He could feel the heat on his skin and the brightness of the sun. Of all the deities he had visited, none had required such a strange task. The ruler scanned the skies. There was not one cloud present. He took off his garment in an effort to be sure that he would fully experience the encounter for which he had traveled so far. And when the sun was at its peak, and the shadowless midday was upon him, the ruler shifted back his neck and lifted his eyes to stare directly into the sun. But nothing happened. After only a brief second, he could no longer continue the task. He had not seen anything and even felt almost blind after such a brief, impossible attempt. Disappointed and angry, he marched back to the rabbi to express his discontent, for he thought he had been tricked. Rabbi, I did exactly as you said, following every instruction, and I saw nothing. You fooled me. You have hidden your God. You do not want me to experience this deity's presence. I have returned from the desert with no findings, and only a futile blindness in my eyes. The rabbi then looked directly in the powerful ruler's woozy eyes. You have spoken truly, but I have not fooled you, for you have only looked at the sun. Yet what you claim to seek is even more powerful than this blazing star, for the sun is but a slave to my God.
for the ruler, the deity he sought was not hidden, but rather profoundly uncontainable, beyond the sight of our limited eyes. If the sun cannot be captured by our sight, how much more that which is the source of the sun? Can you embrace awe? Can you acknowledge that something, a being, a source, a life, a ground, a vastness, an origin, a mind, a nature, a mystery that encapsulates the cosmos and yet is within your next breath? Can you acknowledge that that is possible? But can you also acknowledge that it is not our responsibility, nor should it be possible if such mystery exists, to capture this awe and transcendence? For that, the light that can't be seen, we ought not to be disappointed, but grateful. Let's get into it. So today's text, Acts 2, we started this last week with uh, Don Shever. And um, what today's text, don't pay attention to that. They're going to be fine. Okay? They got it. What today's text from Acts 2 is going to confront is what's called the myth of scarcity. And the myth of scarcity is that, is that, that, that I don't have enough there, there's not enough to go around. I got to make sure that I look out for me and possibly take what I need to and you know, go against people if I need to to make sure that I'm going to survive. That's the myth of scarcity. The myth of scarcity is a very real thing. This text is confronting that. Because partly, this is, this is a text that's going, Torah was just put on display, beginning in Acts 2. Pentecost and Shavuot, are getting fulfilled in their midst, and they're going to be the ones to do it. And the way that's going to look is, yeah, there will be no poor among you. Um, you're going to share your stuff. Um, there will be no needs. Take only what you need. This is all confronting the myth of scarcity. And so Don Cheever last week talked about why they do what they're about to do in Acts chapter 2. And that if Pentecost did just happen, Shavuot's fulfilled, this is the thing that makes complete sense to them. So I don't want to talk about why it happens. I want to talk about what's happening and how that needs to work and what that should mean for us today. Okay? So let's read uh, Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So I think it's easy to read this and go, those must be some saints. Those, those just must be people that are functioning on a whole other plane than I am. And I actually don't think that's true. So I want to try to paint a picture of what um, I notice about this. Um, and let's see what we can come up with before we take communion together, okay? So uh, can you go to the next picture? 
Okay, here's what I, I want you to do. I want you to think about um, your household. Okay? Who's in it? Who are the people? What are the relationships? Um, if you live by yourself, think about your inner circle. Who are, who are the people that are your tribe? What does sharing look like in your household? Because my guess is that in your household or with your inner circle, you have a group of people with whom sharing is quite natural. Okay, you share a space, you share your time, you share your desires, you share your materials, you share your money. Okay, so everybody picturing their inner circle? So you have a circle of inclusivity that naturalizes generosity. And I'm guessing that you don't even think about it. It's just assumed. It's just what you do, right? One of my kids walks into the kitchen and I don't go, hey, get out of here. You're not allowed to be in here. This is my kitchen. No, it's, I, I don't even think about it. It's like, yep, okay, here he is, cool. Um, or, or if my family sits down and, and children cried and distracted everybody, it's okay. Because that's what happens in households sometimes as well. <laughs> All right, so notice that Wes just consoled his child because he has no boundaries on the generosity with his children, okay? So th that was perfect timing, exactly like we planned it. Great example, great illustration. That was wonderful. Um, no, okay, so like my family sits down to dinner and I made the food and we all sit down and I put my plate in front of me and I go, fend for yourselves. Okay, this is mine. Unless it's like duck, I, I don't normally do that. We have this assumed, we're, we are willing with certain people to transcend ourselves and assume their belonging and they therefore share in our lives with us. Okay? And that would be your circle. Your, your, your circle of inclusivity, we'll call it that. Okay? Now, um, go to the next slide. In the ancient Greek and Roman culture, there is a Greek word that I was reminded also is a brand of yogurt <laughs> called oikos. Now, oikos means household. It's also the word for which we get economy. Okay? So whatever is coming to your mind with the yogurt, take that out, put it over there. You don't need it for a minute. So uh, household and economy kind of all painted into this. So you have... Uh, different relationships where you exchange resources for your survival. Um, and that's also your household. Now, in, in Roman society at the, at the time that Acts is written, the oikos was the base unit of society. It's the one that had the most influence. It's the one that had the most importance. It's the one that they understood if it's done right, it's going to influence all the other forms of our society. So you have, you have individuals, okay? And you have relationships. And then over here you have communities and you have society. And they said the building block of them all is the oikos. It's the household. Why? Because that's the one where they saw this sort of generous proximity already happening. And so if they could have healthy households, that was going to help the whole thing run more smoothly. So the oikos was important. Okay. The Jewish people... And if, and if you paid attention to what Don Cheever said last week, 
this will make sense. The Jewish people referred to themselves as the household of God. In Greek, that would translate the oikos of God. And they understood that they were given a blessing that they're supposed to generously share with the whole thing. And so therefore said, our job is to see ourselves as a part of this larger oikos that is also going to help bring in the whole world into this oikos so that the whole thing will be the way that God created it to be. So that's the Jewish thought. The first Christians were Jews. Imagine that. And as they start the early church, what do you think they refer to themselves as? An oikos. Okay? Because here's the deal. You, there's a chance that you read Acts 2 and you go, that sounds real nice, very good ideal. Those are very generous people. But that ain't happening. And I think the first Christians would go, oh, oh no, 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 no. This is just how this works. This is just the thing that makes sense. And what happened for the first Christians is they said, we have a perspective where we transcend our immediate households and assume the belonging of not just our inner circle, not just the circle after that, but of the whole thing. Because if the world is going to look the way that God created it to, it's going to be seeing the whole thing as a common household. So they saw that their belonging transcended whatever differences there were. They transcended all of these obstacles that were in the way. And what happened? Go to the next one. I think the primary thrust is their circle of inclusivity just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And they wanted to see all people and all things as a part of their oikos. And I hope Acts 2 at least makes a little bit more sense once we see that. Um, there's anybody who's familiar with Stoicism. This is the idea called oikiosis. And it's the idea that however you treat your inner circle, you should also treat the most outer circle from you. So, and if we're taking the church seriously here, the same way you treat your spouse, the same way you treat your children, the same way you treat that inner tribe, treat the whole thing like that. That's what's going on in the early church's mind. Therefore, Acts 2, it's, Acts 2 is not, it's not like this religious mandate of like, look, we came up with a really cool spiritual idea, and what if we did this? It's also not just like, hey, practice good philanthropy. That'd be really nice. It's saying, this is just what we do. This is how our house works. You have the myth of scarcity, and we're saying, yeah, no, we're not going to practice that. We're not going to buy into that myth. We're going to order our household this way, where even the most inner circle and the outer circle are treated the same way, and the same way that we naturally share and assume belonging with one another, we're just going to keep expanding that further and further and further. That's what's going on there. All right? Now, I do think this has something to do with your perspective on God and therefore your perspective on yourself, and therefore your perspective on other people. And that's why I wanted us to watch that video, so you could wrestle with transcendence. And here's the deal. You kind of have two spectrums here. On one spectrum, and I would say this, this is in the modern world pretty normal. The perspective of your stuff is, I worked hard. I earned it. 
It's mine. Get your hands off it. Now, with that perspective, I worked really hard. You can still choose to do good things with your stuff, right? And be very generous. I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. It can go bad depending on uh, how stingy you are. But on the other end is a different perspective that I think we're being invited to enter into, which is my life is a gift. It's all a gift. I didn't make my breath. I didn't make my life. I am dependent on something, or you could say someone, who transcends the simple essence of my being. Therefore, everything I have, it's not mine. It's a gift. And my responsibility is how I share that gift with the world around me. You see how those are different? One starts with, this is mine, and I can still be generous. The other says, none of this is even mine. There's a givenness to the world, and I've received that. And so it, it, it would be wrong of me to stop the flow of those gifts and those blessings and not can let them out into the world. Those are very different perspectives. I would say um, if, if the people in Acts 2 have this perspective, then yeah, they're working through some very human things to, to be generous, and that's really great. If they have this perspective, then I think it just makes sense for them. Again, it's, this is a house. This is how things work in our house. This is what we do. Okay, now let's, uh, let's I, we got into this much more at nine o'clock and I'm not going to bore you with uh, sociology and economics, but there are a whole bunch of different economic perspectives in the world. There's one that we see with primitive and, and often tribal communities that uh, actually seems to be informing what the early church and even uh, ancient Judaism understood themselves as. And one of the important things is that they had a very limited goal for what they were after. And it was just livelihood, uh, sustenance, um, survival. As long as we survive, then we, we get what we need. Because the question of primitive societies comes up is, why are they so lazy? Why don't they work that hard? Why do they not utilize all the natural resources that they could? And, and why don't they constantly develop technology? And their argument might be, we're not lazy. We just have what we need and we're not going to continue to pursue abstract wealth. Our culture, at least like post-industrialization, is, is based on wealth is what's going to get you livelihood and can continue to improve your state of livelihood. And so therefore, you, you use money to uh, get things, and then you might even choose to invest in those things in a way where that'll get you more money, which will get you more things. And they're just different. But one of the things I think is important about the, the more primitive approach is what it does to the people. Um, and just in short, what it does is it leads to what's called collectivism. Um, and this came up, and um, I don't want to get overtly political, and I realized Noah had brought up, like, this is more nuanced than I might might have found at 9 o'clock. If you want to use the Bible to promote uh, a a mandated governmental economic policy, please stop. Because it's, it's not, it, that's not how it works. So if you're like super pro-capitalism and you're all in on that, that's great. You're going to have a hard time saying that the Bible is the one that says you have to form government economic policy in the form of capitalism. And I realize this might not, you might not even care about this conversation. Um, 
Are there lots of socialist-like principles in the Bible? Absolutely. Acts 2 kind of looks like one. What's the difference? It's not government mandated. So leave that part out. And now what you're left with is collectivism, which is independent households acting according to their own free will to do what is the right thing. They're, they're using their own um, internal desire to say, my interests are tied up in yours. And, the, and so I do my farming and I live just enough to survive and that's good enough for me and I am able to work like half the hours that modern Americans work in a year and it's great. But say my harvest doesn't do well. Well, my neighbor is probably going to make sure that I make it. Why? Because my livelihood is tied up in theirs. And the welfare of that village is going to be based on, uh, does everybody have enough? If somebody doesn't, then that's going to eventually negatively affect us. And so we all, in our own independent proximity, proximity, there we go, we all make sure that each other are taken care of without anybody having to lord it over us to tell us that's what's supposed to happen. That kind of sounds like Acts chapter 2. That they might view the world that way. That they might be going, we have a group here that needs to transcend just me and I need to look out for them the same way that they need to look out for me because our interdependence is mutually tied together. And so when the people in Acts 2 share their stuff, it's not a new idea. It, it's actually been around before. So let's look back at Acts chapter 2. And my watch is broken, so I don't know what time it is or how much time I have left. Or if I should have been done already. Who knows? What time is it? Oh, great. We're doing wonderfully. <laughs> all right. Uh, go to that text. Skip all of this because I don't want to bore people. Those are all nice, very nice things. Uh, there is a book called um, Stone Age Economics, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, brilliant. It's great. It's about sociology, anthropology, um, and uh, economics. It's, a, it's really, really well done. Um, if you want to know more about that, I'd tell you to go read that. So Acts chapter 2. Um, what's happening here? What is happening here? What does this mean for us today? Is this just a nice religious idea? Or is there something incredibly practical about how humans should be interacting with each other built into this story? So here's the first thing. Um, a couple thoughts, and then I'm going to ask some questions, and then we will take communion, okay? So a couple thoughts. First, Jesus being Lord had very material implications. It directly affected how you lived, how you related, and how you interacted with your things. Often we want to make Jesus as Lord a very spiritual thing that doesn't have direct implications for ethics. They don't seem to make that distinction. If Jesus is Lord, then it's going to deal with your stuff. If Torah is being fulfilled at Pentecost and Shavuot, it's going to deal with your stuff. This is a very material experience to be a part of a movement such as this. Um, I would even go further to say resurrection apparently has in implications for ownership. Okay? How many of you own things? You own a house, you own a car, 
This isn't a trick question because of what I said earlier. I'm genuinely asking, how many of you own something? I'm honestly just waiting for everybody to raise their hand so I make sure that everybody's still alive. Okay. Does resurrection shape how you understand what you own? If it doesn't, how could it? Okay? If you are the recipient of a gift and the thing you own, whether it be your life, whether it be your car, whether it be your house, whether it be all the stuff in that weird drawer in your kitchen, if you're the recipient of a gift, and like seriously, even like your breath, if you believe that is a gift, and that's been given to you by something that is bigger than you, can you own your things with the larger understanding that God owns everything? And if so, what does that need to look like? Like you're just holding on to your house, your car, your life for the moment, but it's not yours. Does that then impact how you, how you interact with and share that kind of stuff? And like seriously, you're going to die and you're not taking it with you. And even if you go like, but I've lived in my house all my life. Yeah, somebody else will probably live there one day and somebody lived there long before you. There's something humbling about understanding transcendence, but the invitation is more beautiful. What are you going to do with these gifts? How are you going to share them? How are you going to allow the blessing to continue to flow so that generosity makes its way to the ends of the earth? <clears throat> what are you going to do with that? And I think we are invited to possess the world differently. Like you can, you, we've talked about generous hands before. You, you can uh, squeeze with your hands, right? And hold very tightly to your stuff. Or you can uh, just have apathy and like not, I don't care, I'm just going to fold my hands. Or you can hold your hands like you would hold an egg and allow things to continue to, like you can hold it, but you continue to pass it on and it flows and it's generous in that way. So what, how do you hold the stuff you possess? How do you hold the world? Which one is it? And just keep in mind, like the first thing we're told about the early church, the first thing people notice about this Jesus movement is how they hold their lives and how they hold their stuff. And how it looks different from so much of the myth of scarcity around them. And I think if, if they had an understanding that said, Torah is about a way the world is meant to function, I think it makes sense for them to go, well then we better, we better share our stuff with each other. Um, Jesus talks about this once. I'm, I'll try to move quickly through this because I... I could go for a long time, and I'll try not to. Um, Jesus talks about having a good eye versus a bad eye, which is a description of generosity. And that how you interact with your stuff, he, he, whatever comes into the eye takes over the whole body. So uh, the, the eye was a picture of generosity. However you interact with your stuff is going to determine the kind of person that you're going to be. And if you are a really nice, pious person, but you're kind of a jerk with your things, that wins out in the end. And that's how you will be defined. So Jesus takes this seriously. I also think about the implications of a church in this way, right? 
Because does our culture function in Acts 2? Does it? No. Okay. We're on the same page? No, it does not. Okay. If the government mandated that Acts 2 was the new way for things to be, would that work? Probably not. Just based on history. Probably not. How will our culture begin to live this out? If churches create that kind of culture to where the world sees that's a better option and begins practicing it that way. I believe that the economy of generosity and love and peace and shalom that is here in Acts 2, I believe that it makes capitalism impossible, the way it's practiced for the most part at least. It also makes communism not necessary. And I'm not interested in those things. What I'm interested in is, can I be part of a community that actually practices this together? Here's the next thing that we need to consider about Acts 2. Have you stolen anything? Have you stolen anything? We look at stealing as, I took what wasn't mine. If everything's a gift, stealing could also be holding on to what wasn't supposed to be held on to by you. There's a quote, I don't think this is contextually absolute, but if you have two coats, you've stolen one. Which is just the picture that if God gave you things to pass on and you're not, is that a problem? If, if the flow of blessing stops with you, is that kind of like stealing? And again, does that define us right now? That we don't steal? No. Can we use that as a, as a guide for how we can keep moving forward in our lives? Um, not going to go into that one. If you want to know more about the gap of uh, health and happiness and how there's this bell curve that the, the people with the most stuff and the people with the least stuff are actually experiencing the same health problems, um, that's interesting, but I'll talk to you later about that. So here's what I say about... I'm trying to move quickly, okay. Um, Acts 2, I think, is about embracing the givenness of the world and allowing that to affect every part of your life. It's about how to flourish together in God's given world, one in which we are the recipients of great generosity. And if the goal is to make the world the way God created it to be, are we able to view the world as an oikos? Are we willing to belong to this kind of household where we see that the whole thing is the house? And we will all have enough if we all have together. I think that's the picture of Acts 2. So this movement, we have to see, it's rooted in generosity. Okay, that's a, that's a thing. And it's a God about a God who has generously invited us into a generous way of being. And here's the deal. Y'all know the song, Big, Big House. Can you sing that real quick? No? Okay. So, so I hate the song. I think it's by Audio Adrenaline. Big, Big House. It's silly. I do think it's helpful for us to go, we are actually part of a big, big house. And it's that this whole thing is our household. The whole thing is the oikos. And we're invited to enact a kind of life together that puts that on display. And if you're going to be a part of the house, you have to act 
in accordance with the house. And, and so what do we do with this? Um, I'm going to ask three questions to us, but first I want to say something about us, the farmhouse. Because I think about uh, this vision for this community. What kind of church are we going to be? And, and I have this vision that what if Evergreen, as a community, was a sustainable, healthy, thriving, rural community? What, what if we did something so that people are like driving here, traveling here to go, how did you all do this? How is this community like functioning so well? And here's what I know about that. The farmhouse will never create that. Because we're not going to have that kind of impact. What we can do is be a community of people that shares in our lives so well, that learns how to see rightly so that we live accordingly, and then we create that kind of culture. The farmhouse will just be a catalyst for that. It'll be a platform to make it easier, but it's going to be a bunch of people living in accordance with this vision. But I think about, like by the time I die, will that happen here? Will we be that kind of church that acts as a beacon for rural churches to go, there's hope. I want that to happen. And I hope that vision's inspiring. But here's what's important, and I hate saying stuff like this from the stage. The only way this thing exists is by people sharing. And when we see the givenness of the world, when we see this place as an extension of our circle of inclusivity, when we see this as a means to uphold the oikos of our place, it will be generosity that makes it possible. We are a non-profit by definition. We could be done at any point. I hate it, but money's part of the game. And here's the deal. You might not know this. There are people in the room right now who give about $300 a week to this. There are people in the room who gives zero. And as somebody who lived on food banks for a portion of my life, I don't blame the people who give zero. Here's my challenge. If every giving family, every household, every oikos in the farmhouse gave $10 more a week than what they currently give, we would have no budget problems and we just move right on into the next thing and the next thing and we keep this thing moving. If every uh, household gave $5 more a week than what we're giving, we'd make it. If neither of those happens, I don't know, because that's the life of a nonprofit. And so my challenge for you, you give 300 a week, that's stinking amazing. I'm glad that you have such means. Can you give 310? You give 305. You give zero right now. Wonderful. I get it. I get that kind of situation, literally. Can you do $10 a week? Can you do five? Because that makes all the difference in if we're going to be this kind of church that we hope to be. Okay. I hope my treasurer is happy with me now because I finally did that. I hate that. Oh yeah, so that little barn box is a place that can happen. Julie also has us in this thing called First Fruits, which is you sign up, you put your information in, we lose fee on the transaction and it automatically comes out of your account. What Vanessa and I use, because we don't really write checks, we don't have a lot of cash on it, 
we do fresh fruits. It works wonderfully for us. So that's an option, and there are sheets at the front table when you first walk in. Okay, so a couple questions, and then we're going to take communion. How can you go to the first question on there? What is your response to the givenness of the world? Are you generous like God is generous? Will do people look at you and see the generosity of God? And here's the thing, you know those like apologetic debates on whether God is real or not? Are you all familiar with those? Like, here's a banana, that proves it, right? <laughs> I think you know, we've talked about that. Uh, I, I don't, if you watch the video, you know, I probably don't care about those conversations. What I can say is the moments where I've experienced the most transcendence is where I have received generosity and I have given generosity. You want to ask me if I know God is real? It's been in those moments where I have received great generosity and I have given. And I went, there's definitely something more than just me in this world. So what is your response to the givenness of the world? Is your life a gift? Is it all a gift? Go to the next question. How big is the house for you? Does it stop at you? Does it stop at just your family? Does it stop at just the people you like? Does it stop at just the people right next to you here? Or is the whole thing the house? Is the whole thing the oikos? That's a question that we have to answer. And and if we want to actually do Acts chapter 2, they just said the whole thing's the house. And so of course they acted that way. Go to the next question. What do you have to share? What do you have to share? Which is also asking, like, what have you been given? What do you have to share? Uh, go, to, go to the next part there. So if we wanted to know um, who you are, I could ask, like, who are you? And you would say, I am, and fill in the blank. Or we could look at how you use your time, how you use your energy, and how you spend your resources, and we will also know who you are. If we looked at your calendar, we looked at your lifestyle, and we looked at your bank account, we would know what you care about. However you spend these three things is going to be what defines your life. So what do you have to share there? And notice, it's not just money. You can write checks to every organization in the world and still not be a generous soul. Because the other stuff matters too. Uh, go to the next part. Um, and here's, here's what I'd say with this. Depending on how big the house is and how you're going to share. Seeing that you have common interest with the people around, that your livelihood is tied to theirs, is helpful. Understanding that your goal should just be the basic things necessary. Livelihood. If you want to stop playing on playing the game and running the treadmill of wealth and furthering, lower what you value. It's going to be okay. And last, take no more than necessary. Um, Exodus chapter 16. God gives manna. You guys know the story? 
God gives manna to the people wandering the wilderness. And God gives just enough manna for each day. And that's all they have. And God says, do not take more than your household needs. If you do, it will cause you to die. It will also cause the person who now can't eat to die. There is no myth of scarcity. There is enough. But if you take more than is necessary, somebody else is going to suffer. And here's the deal. You will too. If you have more than you need, you will have the same kind of problems as somebody who has nothing. Take no more than is necessary. We've been given enough. But we have to choose how we're going to respond to the gift, what kind of oikos we're going to live into, and how that's going to affect the lives that we live in the communities that we call. And so I want to invite us now into the sacrament of communion. And I hope today, especially today, you can take this bread and this cup and remember the gift that you've been given. You have this grace. You have this peace. Just by breathing, God is with you. Celebrate that. You've been given this gift of this blood poured out and this body broken. Receive that. But as you take that bread and you dip it into that cup, also know that if you receive the gift, you will be held accountable for how you let that gift continue to flow. That the givenness you receive in this meal is the givenness you become in the world. And that's our invitation. So if you would like to be served this meal, Amy will be in the back because she doesn't have whatever I have going on here. And if I've gotten too close to you in the front row and you're sick tomorrow, I apologize. I got more excited than I thought I would be when I was up here. Um, but also, you can feel free to serve yourself or serve a neighbor or serve uh, a family member or a friend. Um, however you would like to participate in this meal, I just, I just request that as you do, have gratitude for that gift. Realize that it is with you. And then say, I will continue this in the world. And that's, that's how the world will truly be changed. Grace and peace be with you as you go. As you uh, end the meal, you, can, you are free to depart. Um, but Noah is going to play for us a little bit. I don't have the answers. And maybe that's okay. But we can search together. I'm not running away. And it's okay to feel the way that you do. But when you reach the end of yourself, I'm in there too. When you can't trust, I'll trust for you. When you can't move, I'll stay with you. I don't have the answers Maybe that's okay I don't have the answers
can feel your heartache I know it's not okay I know you feel like you're gonna break But don't pull away And it's okay to feel The way that you do When you reach the end of yourself I'll be there too I'll be there too. 